It occurred to me uh, last night that there's a phrase in here I don't use anymore, and that's pajama people. So welcome to the pajama people. Yeah? Is this on? Okay. Uh-oh. Something happened. Is that working? We're split. So uh, spring break affects us, right, a little bit, as our crew is down today. So Olivia, thank you for making all this happen, and John and Tim. So let's begin with some silence. Let's take a deep breath and uh, try to get in the room, try to be here. And we attempt to be aware that we are right now abiding safely in the heart of the sacred mystery and that our work here is to allow this mystery to find expression through how we live in the world so that all creation can make a difference, can, can experience a difference because of what we do here. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So spring break last year came to a close. And uh, Johnny has not come down for breakfast. And if he doesn't hurry, he's going to be late for school. His mother calls up the stairs. There is no response. Finally, she goes up to find Johnny not only not dressed for school, but also still snuggling warmly under the covers. And she reads him the riot act. She even uses his middle name. So you know how serious this is. And she said, Johnny, if you don't get up and get dressed right this minute and go to school, you're in big trouble. I'm going to fix you something you can eat along the way. And Johnny protests. He says, I don't want to go to school. I hate that school. Besides, none of the kids like me. They make fun of me behind my back. They ridicule me. I don't want to go to school. But you have to go. Why, moans Johnny. His mother pauses for a minute and says, I'm going to give you three reasons. Number one, I'm your mother. Number two, you're 44. And number three, you're the principal. So I remember my parents coming to get me uh, one time. I'd had an extended summertime with my maternal grandparents. And I loved being with them in the Cumberland Mountains. They had no electricity. They had no running water. I thought that was so cool. 
And uh, I would wake many a morning, as we would say in Tennessee, to hear this thump, a thump, a thump, a thump, a sound. Um, none of you could guess what that is, I doubt. It was my grandmother making butter, churning butter. Um, I love being there. She cooked on a wood stove. I thought that was cool. Now I don't think I would like that. But. So um, my mother and father had come to pick me up and take me back to Columbia. And um, my father and my uncle, my uncle was driving an old car of some kind. They're out running some sort of errand. And uh, I was in the back seat complaining that I didn't want to go to school. And I uh, didn't want to go home. I want to continue to stay there for the rest of the fall. Um, and, and I thought maybe I could reason with my dad to get him to see my point of view. And so I said to him, I must have been eight or nine, using the logic that an eight or nine-year-old kid has. I, I said, you don't want to go to work in the morning, do you? And my dad did not respond to me. He turned and said something to my uncle, which is as crystal clear to me right this moment as if it had happened just a couple of days ago. My dad turned to my uncle and said, I cannot imagine getting up and going to a job I didn't love. Now that wired two things in my brain that day. One was I was going to go to school. And the second was, well, I didn't like school. It would take me years before I learned to like going to school, the process going to school. But the other thing it wired in me was that when I got out of school and became an adult, I would have a job that I would love to get up and go to every single day. I typed into Google the question, how many people don't like their jobs? And the answers I got back were between 50 and 85% of people don't like their work. Did you know that more heart attacks occur on Monday morning between 8 and 10 o'clock than any other time of the week? We have a thought about what we're about to do that causes us stress. Um, certainly the pandemic has revealed to us the case that Records number of people have quit their jobs, have figured out how to work from home. Um, and I can tell you as a preaching pastor and as one who um, now teaches that there is a world of difference between I've got to have something to say on Sunday and the experience of I've got something to say on Sunday. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. In the next uh, little while, we're going to talk about three things that I'll elucidate in, in a moment. Um, you remember that um, today what I want to talk about is teachers, teachings, being taught, and teaching. You've seen the t-shirt that says, if you can read this, thank a teacher. So last week we began in uh, here a new theme about embracing the places that scare us as things fall apart. And I want to remind you, this is not intended to be doom and gloom, quite the contrary. Because my thesis is that it is only by fearlessly embracing the inevitable 
that we can experience peace. And we also last week began a new ritual, which I will remind you of now so that you can have it in your brain by the time we get to the end of this. I'm going to say at the end of class, our gathering has come to an end. Where will now we go and who will we be? And you respond, we go out to be God's people in the world. So what this time today is about is an expansion of another thought I introduced last week, and it's namely that though there is nothing we can do to stop the inevitability of things and people falling away, we can significantly alter things as well as the lives of people by making concrete our expressions of appreciation, affection, concern, and love. Now, how we do this is by using the most powerful tool that has ever existed in the history of Homo sapiens. What might that be? Words. Language. And as I said, we're going the next several weeks to be talking about words and truth and freedom. Because these are the things that you find over and over in the Gospel of John. And by experiencing these things and knowing uh, about them at a deeper level, we can learn how to express peace, love, joy, patience, and humility in the world. So today and next week, we're talking about words and their power. The Gospel of John, which we're still going to reference and go deep into, begins with the phrase, in the beginning. Now, if you don't know by now, I love words and I love word phrases. I love word origins. I love the origins of phrases. One of the best purchases I made for myself during the pandemic was this really good dictionary of etymology. I can get lost in a book like this, like some people get lost in a novel. So uh, here's one for you. What do these words have in common? Now, I showed this to Sherry yesterday, and she said, well, they all have three letters. That's true, but that's not the answer. You got it. They're all letters of the alphabet when you say them. B, C, I, J, P, Q, R, T, U, Y. They're all letters of the alphabet when you say them. And then there's Q. There's Q. Q, U, E, U, E. Yeah, Q is a, Q is a strange word because it has all those unnecessary vowels in it. You'd just be fine with just using Q. I mentioned to you that my mother used to, my mother was a high school senior uh, English teacher and the only human being I've ever known who had a degree in Latin. And um, she used to play this word game, a lot of word games with me. One was about seeing which word had the most meanings. And uh, we'd come up with one. I would have to go look it up, which is the way to get me out of her hair. And um, I lived for a long time with the belief that the word that had the most meaning was the word run. Or the word fast. 
you know, colors can be, colors can run in a thing. You can fast from food. A horse can be fast. You can tie a horse fast. But the word with the most meanings in the English language is the word set. It has 430 definitions in the Oxford English Dictionary. The word itself commands an entry of 600,000 words. Now, please don't use the rest of this time today trying to think of all the definitions of set. You can go home and do that later. So a few weeks ago, I said in here that I believe in miracles. And I do. I think that it is a miracle that I can stand here and use air to uh, vibrate a couple of cords in my throat that produces sound that goes through the air, that strikes your ears, that you can translate without even having to think much about it, those sounds into intelligible words and string them together to make sense. That's a miracle. Of course, each of you hears something differently in here. And it gets better because I have had people say back to me in person or email things that I never said in here. Not only is it not something I didn't say, it's usually something I wouldn't say. I, I've been uh, a practicing psychotherapist for decades, and I have still not gotten used to the fact that Somebody will come into a session and they will say something like, you know, what you said during our last session was so helpful or so harmful, one of the two, that, and, and I was wanting to know what it was so that I could use it again or avoid it, would ask, what was it? And they would say something back to me, I never said. Under the best of circumstances, it's a miracle that we can understand each other. The same word in our language can not only have dramatically meet different meanings, but be pronounced differently. The bandage was wound around the wound. The farm was used to produce produce. The dump was so full that it had to refuse refuse. Since there is no time like the present, he thought it was time to present the present. Now, when you add this kind of confusion, and you add to it the dimension of religious language uh, or spiritual content, it can get really uh, dicey. I've had more than one person come up to me over the years of teaching ordinary life and say, this is not a Sunday school class. I thought it was. It's on Sunday. But the association that most people have with a Sunday school class is so negative that when you use that phrase about ordinary life, then they think, well, this is not my grandmother's Sunday school class at all. So, in the beginning was the Word, so begins the Gospel of John. So, I want you to get to thinking about what is the Word. What difference do words make? 
How can we claim our spiritual identity by the words that we use, especially when we are scared and especially when things fall apart? Now, one of the problems that we have in here comes from my commitment to contribute to religious and spiritual literacy. Now, I teach basing what I teach on some aspects of religious tradition or the Bible, and some significant number of people who've come or do come to ordinary life have been so significantly wounded by organized religion growing up that as soon as I head in that direction, they turn it off, right? Now, though I think the writings that make up the Bible have some insights into what it means to be human, so much so that they are worthy of our attention, I think the church has shot itself in the foot by not bringing into the education program of the church truth about what has been going on in the field of biblical archaeology research, biblical studies over the last 50 years particularly since um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 40s. For decades now, scholars have, in virtually every discipline you can think of, have subjected the writings of the Bible to serious analytical analysis, to historical enlightenment. And the Bible, just to be clear, was not dictated by God. It does deserve, I think, a significant place in the religion of Jews and Christians as, a, as foundational and identity documents, but not everything in the collection of we call the Bible demands our uncritical trust or our undying loyalty. And because the church has not been honest about that, many people in the church have either lost integrity, the, the church has lost integrity for them, believability, or uh, they don't take the church seriously. Or other people end up with a relationship to the Bible that is not wise and not useful. Now there are several reasons that I use verses from the Bible, especially at this current time in our world from the Gospel of John. For one thing, they've been helpful to me, and for another, because I see the evangelical movement to be the noisiest religious movement in this country, to be abusing the words attributed to Jesus. I want to provide a corrective. And in a world where things are falling apart, there's some good news to be found in the pages of the Bible that would be helpful to us. Now, I've said this to you before, but the Gospel of John was written to and by people in a time when their world was falling apart. Persecution of Christians during the, the beginning of the first century, second century, had begun to increase, and the people who would read or hear this content of the Gospel of John were the ones who were the recipients of these teachings. The Gospel of John begins, in the beginning was the Word. Words matter. In the beginning was the Word, in John is echoing what? First chapter of Genesis. Where God who's a guy in the sky, 
creates everything in the world by word, by what God says. So the Pope dies and goes to heaven, of course. And St. Peter greets him and says, Your Holiness, welcome. Come in. What can we do to get your stay off to a good start? And the Pope thinks for a moment and says, You know, I've been curious about how closely we've come on earth to matching the will of God. We have prayed it every day. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. However, I'm sure we messed some things up. I'm sure we missed some things. Is there any way that I could know? And St. Peter says, of course. And takes him down this long aisle to these huge doors. And these two big doors open. And inside is a library that none of us could imagine. And, and St. Peter says to the Pope, in here... You have recorded the will of God from the Big Bang Theory until now. And you have all eternity to look at. Take your time. So the Pope finds a comfortable chair and sits down. And a couple of centuries later in our time, St. Peter passes the door one day and from inside the Celestial Library, he hears this deep, agonizing sobbing. And between sobs, the words, actually there are screams that can be heard. Oh no, God, no, no. And monks and angels come when the sounds begin to reverberate all over the heavenly city. St. Peter goes up and puts his hand on the Pope and says, Your Holiness, what is it? And the Pope stands up almost throttling out the mouth and he says, Oh God, no, look, he shouts, pointing to the manuscript. It says celebrate. <laughs> Not celibate. <laughs> it's a joke. But... It illustrates something, right? The notion of celibacy was created not by one word, but by several. Not one of which are in the Bible. It is a highly unnatural practice that has survived for centuries. Now imagine what the church would be like today if that word had never been used. If that word had never been used, it would not more than likely have created a male-dominated church. Maybe women would be held in higher esteem in this church. And God knows how many children might have been spared being violated or damaged for life by pedophile priests. And that says nothing about what, the, the, what celibacy has done to the church's reputation. 
Now, the idea that words create worlds goes all the way back to the beginning of Jewish mythology. That's what the verses of John are echoing. The book of Genesis in the Bible has two creation stories, and in each of them, God, a male God in the sky, creates the earth and what is on it by speaking words. Now, every religious tradition I know about, every approach that I know about to create a meaningful spiritual life stresses the importance of having a teaching. And if you're going to have a teaching, you need teachers. And without students, of course, teachers are useless. So here you are today, you and I, with this tacit agreement about what we're up to, learning how to embrace what scares us while things fall apart. That's what we're talking about. And I'm the teacher, and you're being taught. However, it is much more complex than that. Everyone knows, I suppose, that if you really want to learn something, teach it. So the real student here today is me. And the desire I have to be as clear as possible in communicating a very complicated subject matter. In facing fearlessly the fact that things arise and they fall away, we need to learn some things. And I'm going to take you right to the bottom line today because my most intense learning experiences have been in the presence of death and dying. Cheerful um, <clears throat> thought. Just grit your teeth and we'll get through this. It's not going to be as bad as you think. All of my initial clinical experience, my clinical training was in a hospital setting for seven years. And um, so in the hospital setting, we dealt with death and dying on a regular basis. The hospice movement was not in place when I began my training in the mid to late 60s. And um, what we were taught and what I learned very early on is that, uh, now this is if you're lucky, you remember this, that, that, that what my supervisor said to me when we went out on rounds the very first day and we were scared? He said, if you're lucky, you will grow old, get sick, and die. If you're lucky, if you're not lucky, you're going to get hit by a truck or have a sudden heart attack or something like that. But if you're lucky you'll enjoy this process of growing old, and unless you have a neurological condition, you'll be, thanks to the hospice movement now, pretty, pretty lucid and aware right up until the end. You, you hope, yeah, you hope. Well, what I learned in the hospital was that uh, people who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness, there was this thing called closed awareness. Um, the patient was not informed about her, her or his uh, impending death. Now, the doctors and the nurses knew, sometimes the chaplains knew, and with a little experience, you begin to learn how to read charts, you can figure it out. Uh, the fact that this patient will never recover. 
Now, this closed awareness bit is no good when you're in the process of active dying. You need the benefit of knowing what's happening so that you can, as they say, get your affairs in order and say goodbye and all those other things. And then there is the situation where there is suspicion awareness. <clears throat> Gradually, the patient becomes aware that he or she is dying. And so patients who enter into this phase do what they can to elicit information from their caregivers about their dying process. I'm dying, aren't I? I'm going to die, aren't I? I'm not getting out of here alive, or am I? How much longer do I have? And in collusion, usually with the family, the patient gets lied to. Hey, you're fine. We're going to lick this thing. You'll be fine. And then there is a situation where the dying and the caregivers and the family, they enter this uh, uh, tacit agreement unspoken of mutual pretense. We all know that I am dying, but we're not going to talk about it. Just going to not, it, we're just not going to address this situation. And then there is a situation uh, where there is open awareness. The patient knows, has been told, and um, everybody around the patient knows and can deal with it. Uh, <clears throat> I have entered that part of my life where um, many of my friends have died. And I've entered that part of my relationship with people here at St. Paul's where I'm being called more and more to deal with people who are in hospice care. And um, again, in, in, unless you have a neurological condition uh, and hospice is involved in this, um, of course, if hospice is involved, you know you're done. And, and um, the people that I have been with lately, most recently, for example, one will have her service here um, on April the 3rd, Peggy Odom, who is a member of this church, was told by her doctor, there's nothing more I can do for you, go home. And that afternoon, Peggy called me and I went to see her. And I, I, will, I will tell you, and part of this is just experience, I guess, and part of it is my own work, uh, some of which I'm going to allude to in a, in a moment. But um, the thing I say to people who are entering hospice care is there's nothing to be scared of. You're going to be fine. And I, I, I can watch hospice people enough, long enough to know that that's the truth. You're going to be fine. So, just so you and I are on the same page here, okay, whether you know it or not, you are suffering from a sexually transmitted terminal illness. <laughs> it is called being human. After I was diagnosed with having coronary artery disease and had a, had a quadruple bypass surgery to deal with it, I asked my cardiologist if there was a cure for CAD, and he said, nope. And then he said, I found out later he was Buddhist. He said, remember what Buddha said. 
To have a body is to live in a house that is on fire. We all are of the nature to get sick, grow old, and die. And so is everybody we love. Everything arises and falls away. Now, <clears throat> if you find what I've just said worrisome to you, and off-putting, or that it doesn't apply to you. <laughs> I remember uh, a few years ago for Sherry's birthday, we went to California. This is not my notes. We went to California to visit um, one of my very best friends, our best couple friend for a long, long time. Uh, the, the guy who married us, he was also a Methodist minister and a psychologist as well my racquetball partner every week for 17 years, unless one of us is sick or out of town. He died year before last. And uh, so we, we got to California, and in five minutes after getting there, we were all four walking on the beach. And the women had gone off to talk about something. And Donna and I were walking on the beach, and he said, so you came here to celebrate Sherry's birthday, huh? I said, yep. And he said, uh, well, you got a birthday coming up in the fall, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, how old are you going to be? And I don't remember what it was, in the late 70s or something. I'll be 85, my neck. And he said, so you're close to the end. How's it feel? And the whole weekend, that's all we talked about, was what made life meaningful, how we wanted to be remembered, what we had yet to do, all that sort of thing. And one day we stopped somewhere for lunch and, and uh, I found myself saying, well, if I should die. <laughs> it's reflexive. We deny so much. So if you're in that category and you are not in the process of actively dying, I recommend that you buy and get this book, The Grace in Dying by Kathleen Singh. Kathleen Singh was going to come and speak here. We had a date with her. I called her up and played the trump card. I saw that she was... Um, Somewhere quoted in uh, Richard Rohr's stuff, I saw I played the trump card, and I told her, I said, Kathleen, I'm a friend of uh, Richard Rohr's, and she said, well, you're already a friend of mine. I said, I want to get you to come to Houston to speak. So we worked out a date, and she was coming here to be one of the lecture speakers. And about two months after we had arranged it, she called me up one day and said, I can't come. I've just gotten a devastating diagnosis of cancer. I won't be here. And two months later, she was dead. And her daughters posted on the website, our mother died like she had taught. This is one of the best books you can possibly get on the subject of death and dying, about your own, The Grace in Dying. Kathleen Singh has a lot of good books, and this is the best. Now, if you are closer to the end and are in the process of active dying, I recommend this book by Atul Gawande called Being Mortal. This is the book that I think uh, allowed Peggy Odom to decide a week or two before she died where she wanted to be when she died, and she transitioned. This is a great book, too. Both of these need to be in, in your library. So one of the great things now about our time in life is the uh, hospice movement. 
So hospice patients can have pain managed. And uh, as I said, unless there's neurological damage or disorder, you can stay pretty lucid right to the last. Right? And you have a chance to do something. So, um, of course, if you're in hospice, there's open awareness. We can talk about your journey. Um, and I don't remember where I got this, but I've known it for a long time, to talk to families about this is what you need to do in relating to this person who is in the process of dying. There are four things that you need to say. The first is, I love you. When I tell Sherry that I love her, I'm not telling her something she doesn't already know. Nor is what I say logical, verifiable information. It's something that binds me to her. Right? And I'm not trying to be redundant when I say I love you, I love you, I love you. It's more like when the sun comes up every day, there are new yet to be explored possibilities. So that when each one of us says it to the other, there's a promise of renewed, deepened intimacy between us. And I am confident, just as it was in the Gospel of John, in the life and teachings of Jesus, it is here the most important spiritual teaching I have to offer you is this. I love you. You don't have to do anything to get this love. It's just there. It's yours. So Jesus went about loving people and being really pissed off when the religious leaders of his time indicated that anyone for whatever reason was outside God's love. And what he demonstrated in word and deed over and over and over again is, I love you. The second thing to say in the presence of death and dying, and death and dying are always present, right? Is thank you. You you have no idea how grateful I am for you. If it weren't for you, it would be very lonely up here. That was meant to be a joke. So my yearning and call is to be a spiritual teacher, and it's come to pass that this is where I get to experience and fulfill this urge. Thank you. Thank you. We do this too uh, seldom in our relationships. There's a story in the Jesus narrative where Jesus heals ten lepers. You know the story? And they run off to show themselves clean to the priest, which is only going to get Jesus deeper into trouble in that economy. And as they're running off in joy of being pronounced clean, just one comes back and says thank you. So years ago, Sherry and I attended a psychology conference in Atlanta where John Gottman was the plenary speaker. John Gottman was talking about his most recent research. And Gottman, at the time, I'm not sure this is true any longer, but at the time, John Gottman owned the market in relationship research in the United States. And in this particular psychology conference, we heard him talk about what he would later in one of his books call bids 
for each other's affection, attention, and appreciation. And what he said is what they found out in relationships that flourish, and not all relationships do, but in relationships that flourish, there is a six-to-one ratio of positive to negative comments. Now, this includes the things you say to your intimate partner, um, surely things like, um, thanks for bringing me juice this morning, thanks for bringing the paper, thanks for making coffee, you look great in that color, I love that fragrance on you, that cologne, whatever it is, et cetera, et cetera. These are so critically important relationships. So we heard his presentation, and then the two of us went to lunch, and we processed what he, what he said. And I was saying to Sherry, wow, how important are those six things to say them? And Sherry's experience was different. She said, what I got back is how powerful is that one negative. It can wipe out so much. Now, this is complicated because most of us, especially me, don't have a clue about the emotional wake we live in, leave in the lives of other people. So thank you. You hear that? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's six. Needs to be 6,000. Third thing that we need to say to the dying and between us is I for, forgive me. Please forgive me. You know, you come in here some Sundays uh, perhaps hoping to hear words of comfort and love. A loved one has just died. Putin quotes the Bible in justifying invading Ukraine. Deal with that next Sunday. A relationship has ended, your economic future looks shaky, you're worried about a child who seems to be making all the wrong decisions. And that's the week that I spend telling jokes, telling puns, doing magic tricks. Please forgive me. Or it could just easily be the other way around. You're depressed, it's been a week as hard as you can remember. You're looking for something uplifting, and that's the week I remind you that you are going to die. And what a dark condition the world is in, that nations don't last. Ours might not. Or the one that I really like to do, there's nothing to hold on to. And say it with such a smart-ass demeanor. Please forgive me. And the fourth thing that needs to be said and heard in these relationships is, I forgive you. Everyone in a committed, intimate relationship knows what it's like for, for our partner to forgive us. We've stood in front of a minister, priest, rabbi, or some other official of the state and made promises that are impossible to keep. We break them and ask for forgiveness. Maybe our transgression was something of such an act of betrayal that it will leave a mark on our partner's heart for the rest of their lives. 
We ask for, and if we want the relationship to continue, we hope to receive forgiveness. Now, when there were, she was on the other foot, oh, and we're the ones that have been wrong. Man, sometimes we love to hang on to that. It's like we have a garden of grievances out in the backyard, and from time to time we need to go out and make sure it's doing well. <laughs> in my counseling practice, I've seen people like that. Their partner broke a promise that they had made standing at the altar. And um, that was 15 years ago. But to hear them talk about it, it was as if it was last week. It's so raw and fresh. <clears throat> of course, in the relationship that you and I have, there's nothing to forgive, is there? I've begged you only because it's so essential to your well-being to have a daily spiritual practice and some of you have still not done it. I forgive you. Or there are times when your body makes it here but your mind stayed home in bed. Or about five minutes after class starts, your spirit goes out the window? You just go to sleep? I forgive you. Then there are the times when the projections you make onto me, either positively or negatively, bear absolutely no resemblance to who I am. I forgive you. Or the teacher says, I got an idea about a new direction in which to take class, and you rebel. I forgive you. Recently, I found out that I have been given the assignment of preaching both services after Easter. Now that and the Sunday after Christmas are the two worst preaching assignments in the entire church year. So I cornered the person who did that to me <laughs> this morning and said, I forgive you. I've already thought of the title that I want to give that sermon. The title is, um, Don't Get Even, Get Odd. <laughs> because if I were Jesus... And I had just come back from the dead. There's some people I'd like to talk to. <laughs> you know? Those friends of mine who abandoned me. Those Roman soldiers who put me through that torture. But Jesus didn't do that. He shows up with his disciples and says two things. Don't be afraid. And I tell you what, I'm going to empower you to go out and do what I was doing. Perhaps the greatest I forgive you story in Christian literature is a relationship between Jesus and Peter. In a parable the early church told, 
And, and who knows, maybe it has some roots in the actual relationship between Jesus and Peter. Peter professes his love and loyalty to Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, I know you, and you're going to betray me. And Peter looks at him and says, no, no, sir, not I, sir, not me. But of course he does. Not just once, but three times. And it doesn't say in the story what Peter saw in those eyes when Jesus is being led away from the trial of Pilate and they gaze eyes. But I can guarantee you it was not, Peter, you no good so-and-so, I told you. Rather, it was, Peter, I still love you. I love you. Thank you. Please forgive me. I forgive you. When things fall apart and we're scared, say those. Now, before you leave here, start making the list of people you need to say that to. Your parents, your partner, your children, and maybe most of all, even to yourself. Now, that's important because what we bring to the table in all of our relationship, in all the worlds that we inhabit, especially in the face of our awareness that things fall apart, is a relationship we have to us. So this is the formula for how you embrace what scares you. If I'm in active hospice and you come to see me, please don't be scared. It's okay. So take these words out of here and use them. Find as many opportunities as you can to use them. I love you. Thank you. Please forgive me. I forgive you. So our gathering has come to an end. Where will we go and who will we be? We go out to be God's people in the world. See you here next Sunday. Okay.